what's important is not what actually happened, but how the person internalized took in what happened. This is completely consistent with a, a, an author, a writer named Aldous Huxley. And he says, experience is not what happens to us. Experience is what we do with what happens to us. So I'm always listening as much as possible for what has the person done with what's happened to them. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price, and I'm your host. Today I speak with a man named Mark Winborn, Dr. Mark Winborn. Let me introduce you to him real quick, and then we'll get to some details. From his website at drmarkwinborn, D-R-M-A-R-K-W-I-N-B-O-R-N.com. Dr. Mark Winborn is a licensed clinical psychologist, Jungian psychoanalyst, and nationally certified psychoanalyst with over 30 years of clinical experience. He provides individual psychoanalytic psychotherapy and psychoanalysis for adults in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. Winborn is a training supervising analyst of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts. He served as the training coordinator for the Memphis Jungian Seminar, is on the faculty of the C.G. Young Institute of Zurich and the Moscow Association for Analytical Psychology, as well as a visiting faculty at a number of institutes and seminars, both in the USA and internationally. He's available for clinical psychoanalytic supervision and speaking engagements. Mark is also a blues musician, so a little clip you heard earlier is from his album that just came out. The album's called Bluff City Breakdown, under the name of Juke Jones. And that track is Go Back to Your Used to Be, and if you hang around to the end of the conversation, you'll hear the full track. Thanks for letting me use that, Mark. So uh, from, a, from a Jungian tradition, a lot of times I heard... A friend of mine once said that uh, there are a lot of Jungians who get their heads in the clouds and stay in their own kind of fairy tale. And I think Mark's book really addresses that, that sometimes we can become too consumed with really rich myth, metaphor, um, uh, image, and, and, and miss the more concrete aspects of living. So, many of you who are familiar with the Jungian training technique may be aware of that. And if you weren't, now you are. And one of the things that kind of the Jungian tradition doesn't get so much of is, is a lot of technique, rubber meets the road technique. And Mark's book does that, addresses that. Even Murray Stein, as I just looked down, I see Mark Winborn's highly readable book fills a critical gap in Jungian writing on the practice of analysis. This work is destined to become one of the basic texts for training contemporary Jungian psychoanalysts from Murray Stein, the former president of ISAP, and also a participant on this podcast. So there's something about this book, Interpretation in Jungian Analysis, Art and Technique, that I feel as a clinician, it it was very helpful. But as just a, a 
person who's curious about my inner world. <laughs> it, he does a good job of talking about how we can relate with our inner world and express that. So there's Mark. And, uh, and now I've, I've read his bio and I've read some of his book. And uh, now I want to get to some updates. So just a couple of things going on here in Houston. Let me find my site. So a couple things. First is our practice, the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, will be teaching a class at the Young Center starting, it's five Wednesdays in April, starting the 22nd. So April 22nd, 29th, May 6th, 13th, and 20th, from 545 to 715. And what's happening is the whole practice is coming together to essentially teach about expression. So the class is called Under Our Skin, Psychotherapy, Acupuncture, Tattoos, and Music. And just a bit from the, from the heading. We associate needles with fond memories when they're placed in the groove of a favorite vinyl record, but what about in other circumstances? For the uninitiated, the imagined pain of getting acupuncture a tattoo sparks a visceral fear. But if we take an honest look at our lives, we find that some of the most meaningful events are those that were painfully earned. We mark and bend our bodies. We speak our secrets. We cut, scrape, poke, and prod. We dance and paint and sing and reflect, all to understand, to cure, and to cope with our universal suffering. There's just a little bit of a, of a tidbit on this class that um, this, the whole practice, check the practice out at the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. Excuse me. Check the whole practice out at the Center for Haas, the Center, T-H-E-C-E-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-H-A-S dot com. And you can learn about all the people that, uh, that are in the practice. But if you go to youngyouston.org, J-U-N-G-H-O-U-S-T-O-N dot org, you can find the class. And if you're, you're going to be in Houston then, check it out. Come on out. And at the end of it, I think in probably around... That Friday, May 20, uh, excuse me, what is that? May, yeah, May 22nd or 23rd, we're going to have a, uh, I think we're going to try and do it on the 22nd. We're going to have a show in town. Rodney and I are going to play a show at, uh, at a venue that will be to be determined. So as always, the podcast is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. Again, check it out at the website. For information on this podcast, check it out at thesacredspeaks.com. And of course, you can like, share um, the podcast through Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and all the other things, Facebook, Instagram, so on and so forth. All right, well, again, thanks for, for being here today. I enjoyed getting to know Mark, and his book was and is uh, very helpful. I, as I said in the podcast, all the therapists in our office are reading through this book to get a little bit of our understanding of psychoanalytic theory and interpretation. Any more updates? I think that's it. So for now, we'll leave it there. Dr. Mark Winborn, thank you for uh, for joining me. I've already called you adventurous, and we've already discussed if uh, <laughs> that that may be a good or, or a good thing or not. I think that's a good thing, so I'm I'm really grateful and uh, 
I'm excited to meander through these through this territory with you. Well, thanks, John. I really appreciate the invitation to come online and uh, sort out some of these things with you as best we can. <laughs> let's let's sort them out, man. I, we've already said yeah. that you and I share an interest in music, so I hope we'll uh, I hope we'll get into some of that content. Right. Right. Yeah. To start, though, I woke up today thinking about this conversation, and I, 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 we've got to walk, we've got to walk in two different sides of the pond here. On the one hand, I want to be careful not to go, uh, as my, as my friend Homer says, don't go too far inside baseball. So not to do too much in-house shop talk. Um, of course, right. of course, we'll get into that. I just want to be respectful for. Uh, the listener who may not be a psychotherapist and mm -hmm. I, I, and then also to kind of go wherever we go. But I, I, when I think about your expertise and, you know, you sent me five or six papers and then your book, Interpretation and Jungian Analysis, Art and Technique, I, I, I read those. I didn't get to two of the papers, but I read the rest. And... You know, you have you have an interesting knack for 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 getting into some details that kind of Jungians tend not to go into. And so, right. as as one of those Jungians, I really appreciate that background. So let's let's start off with with kind of one foot in the side of the pond that that is not psychotherapist, and uh, okay. and, and talk about what psychotherapy is, and kind of what this process. Uh, does for people, and, and let's just kind of associate to that for a bit, if we can. You know, it's interesting. This is one of the uh, topics that I actually speak to um, people who are in training to be psycho union psychoanalysts, and I get them to think about what it what is psychotherapy, and in in the groups that I have more influence and can make more expectations where I actually have them write a, a short paper trying to describe what they think is transformational in the process. Because often nobody's asked them that. They know what Jung says about it, but they haven't formulated their own thoughts. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I say in the interpretation book that I think applies is, uh, interpretation is an invitation for the patient to see their world in a new way. And I think you can extend that to that's what, a, that's what therapy is, is everybody comes in with some degree of blinders on and therapy should help somebody see their lives with fewer blinders. There's a beautiful sculpture by a guy named Zenos Fredakis that's in Philadelphia called Freedom. And I hope everybody who's listening will go online and look it up because it's an amazing sculpture. Yes, it is. And it really describes, it really depicts somebody who's kind of locked into their previous ways of thinking about themselves, about their feelings, about their relationships, about their relationship to the world around them and then gradually breaks free of those preconceptions. And really that's what analysis should do. 
is help people break through, break free from their own preconceptions of themselves, what motivates them, and how they relate to the world around them. Okay. I, 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 I want to deconstruct even that sentence. To help people break free from their preconceptions. And it gets out of... Okay, yeah, we could do our deconstruction there. I mean, to break free, that's an interesting image. Um, conception, I think, is a very important term there. The, the idea of it being a concept. And I'm, I'm wondering if to, to talk about, you know, one thing you note, you note in, um, in your book is that people come into therapy with, a, with an idea or a narrative or a theory of what's going on already. And, and so, right. you know, there, there's inherent in the process of psychotherapy is a degree of uh, submission. You know, somebody's saying, look, I've, <laughs> I've done all I can do. I, I, I've tried what I can try and I keep bumping up against the same stuff and I don't know how to operate anymore. And I'm going to do this humbling act of kind of turning to somebody else. And in, in your experience as a psychotherapist, where do those preconceptions come from? Well, I think they come from our environment. They come from our interactions with the people around us. They come from what we observe in others that we look up to or that we depend on. And I'm sure there's certain precon preconceptions that come from the physiology of who we are. We may not be able to identify a particular moment that we've come to because we're born with the, some of those. Um, but if you think about somebody, for example, who's born uh, colorblind, that, that's, a, a, in a sense, you could call that a preconception. So there's certain colors that they're not able to perceive. Now, if nobody ever told them about colorblindness, they would assume that that's the way everybody sees things. <laughs> this is that uh, you know, philosophy. I was talking to Eric Goodwin, this fellow, um, a couple weeks ago about qualia, and this you know kind of when it comes to subjectivity, you know, we've we what what did you, what, you you quoted from it at some point? Young's quote about um, you know one of the greatest dangers in the world is the individual imagining that the rest of the world sees the world as they see the world, you know, through their own psychology. Right. And that, and that goes back to Plato's analogy of the cave mm -hmm. that people who, and Plato uses this analogy to talk about uh, essentially this self limitation that subjectivity provides us. Mm -hmm. And he uh, simply says, imagine some people that are have grown up their entire lives in a cave and they've been chained to a wall of the cave and the caregivers operate on a catwalk behind them and they lower down their food and their water and take care of their eliminations but they only see that but there's candles or fires behind the caregivers and so they only see the caregiver projected onto the wall in front of them in two dimensions and so then one day they're released from their bondage and they go out into the outer world. 
but they can still only see in, th in two dimensions because their eyes have become accustomed to that. So they can't see depth. Hmm. And I think that's a good analogy for what, how we come through life. It's not always trauma. It's simply limitation. There was a great case uh, uh, that a colleague in the UK wrote up for one of the journals, and she was dealing with this guy who came from a, a very low, uh, lower middle class, working class group, but was very talented artistically and got a full scholarship to an art college in the UK, in, in London. And his first day, he took the subway and got off. And this art college was on this beautiful uh, manicured square uh, park in front of the college. And he looked at it and he had never seen anything like it in his life. And he, it felt completely alien to him. Mm -hmm. And he walked back down the subway entrance and never went into the college. He just couldn't imagine himself joining into that segment of society that he'd never been exposed to before. Who hasn't felt like that? I've... Yeah, like don't not having the resources to to be able to uh, encounter what he imagines he can encounter. Or he will encounter, right? And so, so that's that's. Mm -hmm. I think that's why I like the term preconception there, which is, you know, we have established these beliefs and um, ideas and uh, and attitudes about the way that reality functions. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the Plato's cave is such a good image there because it, at least the two dimensional aspect, because I, I think that part of what ends up happening through psychotherapy is a fullness. Um, it's not better. It's not, you know, without anxiety. Um, it's fuller, it's richer, it's more whole, it's more expansive. And there's something about that preconception I've noticed in, uh, in myself and the folks with whom I work that people tend to want to get rid of the things that are bothering them, the symptoms that are coming up. And so that there, right. there are preconceptions that I would be better if I didn't have this anxiety. And, uh, and that, I, that I think is, of course, one of those limitations that, that we hope to reframe. Right. That's what Jim Hollis is going into in his book, Swamplands of the Soul. Yeah. Uh, he's specifically saying all of these emotions that we would, in our culture, we prefer not to feel, grief, sadness, loss, anxiety, fear that people try to protect themselves from often carry what Jung would call the seeds of the cure. Yeah. That there's something in there to be discovered, understood, and then incorporated into our broader sense of ourselves. Well, I want to pick back up on preconceptions, but I'm having, uh, I got a curiosity about you. If you're willing okay. to go there, what what got you into psychotherapy to be a to be an analyst? Um, that was a circuitous route. Uh, I came out of high school and really didn't know what I wanted to study. My father was a psychologist, 
and of course I didn't want to be like my father <laughs> at that point in time. <laughs> and I got interested in the military and signed up with ROTC and that gave me a sense of purpose and direction. And then I went in midway through my junior year. I was really excelling at ROTC, but I got really depressed. Uh, and I was majoring in criminal justice at that time. And I could do, I could get an A uh, if I attended the class or I could get an A if I read the books, but I didn't need to do both. And there's something that was intrinsically wrong to me about that. Mm. Uh, and I went into a really severe depression. Everybody got worried. Uh, you know, like one of these depressions where you don't want to get out of bed. Uh, and I had this without real assistance. I had this realization, I've got to switch my major. Otherwise I'm not going to graduate. And the ROTC people expect you to graduate on time. And psychology was literally the only major in the entire university that I could change into and still graduate on time. And once I got into it, I loved it. Yeah. So I quickly realized I've got to apply to graduate school. Luckily, the Army gave me an educational delay from going on active duty. And I got admitted to several programs and picked the one at the University of Memphis and then finished that and went on my one year internship to William Beaumont Army Medical Center in El Paso, which was an amazingly supportive, encouraging place. And the first day there, they said, what do you want to be as a psychologist? And I didn't really know. And most of the other guys I was with, the other people that I was with, didn't know either. And he said that, and they said, that's okay. But by the time you finish this internship, we want you to have an idea about that. And we'll do whatever we can to facilitate that. Mm -hmm. And then this guy who was a recovering alcoholic, Rich Patterson, who was a former army psychologist, came in to essentially run a process group for us, a group for us to, uh, process groups, a term for a group to help people um, process their feelings about a, pro a, of a situation they're going through. So they wanted us to have a place where we could talk about how the internship was impacting us. And one of the exercises he did, this is in 1986-87, he did was, he said, let's all come up with a list of books that have been impactful to us. And I had my list of books that had been significant to me. And one of the books he talked about was Memories, Dreams, Reflections by Carl Jung. And whatever it was about the way he talked about that turned on a light bulb for me. Hmm. And then I managed to get assigned after the internship was over to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York which is 45 minutes north of New York City, which is one of the big psychoanalytic centers of the world. And I could start taking classes at the New York Jung Institute, not as a matriculated student there, but they had 
classes for mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. And that was my introduction. And then I signed up for a one-year program with Don Calshed, who some of the listeners may be familiar with. Sure. And that, that was kind of my experiment in what psychoanalytic training would be like. And so I finished that. And my three, my four years of active duty with the Army was coming to an end. And I moved back to Memphis, where I had done my graduate school training and opened my private practice and joined the Memphis Jungian Seminar, which is part of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts. And uh, that started my formal analytic training. But it was something about the way Rich talked about the importance of Jung to his recovery process that turned on the light bulb for me. And without that, I wouldn't be sitting here today, I don't think. Well, it is odd that you're, you are talking about a, an area that's rich with psychoanalytic studies and your choice was kind of the Jungian route. And being a, an individual in the army, and I have my, all my projection of what that mm -hmm. is, you know, detail oriented, um, mm -hmm. disciplined, there's, there's something, I don't know, there's something reductive, I think, about the kind of that, that specificity that it takes to be, I think, in the Army. And yet you're kind of predisposed to go into something that's kind of Jungian. So what did those two things mean to you at the time, you know, traditional psychoanalytic studies and Jungian? Well, I was interested, uh, some, as an undergraduate, I had taken a course in um, for, uh, of early Freudian theory, mm -hmm. uh, taught by a well-known psychologist, psychoanalyst there, and just the way he taught it did not bring it to life for me. I thought it was rather dry and dull, and there was something about Jung and his emphasis on spirituality yeah. and the spiritual process, not in a formal religious sense, that was really important to me at that time and remains important. Uh, and so that was the, that was the route that made the most sense to me. Uh, I had other opportunities to get involved in uh, a place in New York called the William Allison White Institute. That's a relational psychoanalytic Institute, but I was already more interested in Jung, but I've always had, an interest in both camps and I think I think of psychoanalysis as any therapy that deals with the unconscious mm -hmm. and places the unconscious at the center of the process and that Jungian psychology or analytical psychology as it's formally termed is simply one of the camps under that umbrella so I don't think psychoanalysis is one thing and analytical psychology is another. It's just one of the various schools of psychoanalytic mm -hmm. thought. Now, there's others that would disagree with me, and I understand that. Uh, but my whole career has been built around building bridges between the two rather than separating the two. That's one thing that I really appreciate about your writing is that I I just I get a little suspicious of the kind of, as, as my buddy says, in the baseball, you know, terminology, that, mm -hmm. that you're kind of in group as opposed to opening up to something else. And 
I, I just kind of want to know it all. I, I certainly want to have a, a lane, so to speak. And I, I really agree with you. And I even felt as we were talking about kind of Jungian versus whatever else, I, I felt compelled to almost uh, give a spoiler alert that your area of interest really is a, a both end. And you, you write about it, right. I think, extensively. And, um, and that's one reason why I was so excited to read your work, because, you know, as a clinician, I, I really do have to, to mine in all kinds of other territories in order to get at more technique-oriented approaches. And we'll, we'll get to this. I just want to plant this seed that we'll get to later. Um, because I'm with you, the spiritual component and, and we can, then I'm curious how you define that, but the, the, from my lens, the spiritual component of the kind of Jungian approach is what feels juicy and rich. H- how did you define it at the time? Spiritual. Well, I had gone through a really profound fundamentalist conversion experience while I was in graduate school. And prior to that, I wasn't open to the spiritual realm at all. Uh-huh. Nothing transcended at all. Uh, Even though I had attended church as a kid, it never really felt alive to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there was something about uh, that experience that really brought it alive. And I subsequently uh, relinquished the fundamental aspect of it, but the experience, the phenomenology of the spiritual realm and something transcendent and larger than myself is what I've retained. I'm sitting with so I can have a profound religious spiritual experience listening to music or viewing art or reading a poem as much as I can um, visiting a cathedral. You know, and to me, they're just as valid and real. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was just in Moscow uh, just a week ago and teaching and visiting these incredible Orthodox, uh, Russian Orthodox cathedrals and just very moved by it. But I might be just as moved listening to a jazz musician in New York. <laughs> Amen. Now, I got caught there for a second thinking about uh, the, the, the process of fundamentalism. And I don't, I don't want to, the reason I got caught is because I was thinking about that being contextualized as kind of a developmental stage where, mm-hmm. you know, there, there is an element of fundamentalism in the early stages of any new experience where we kind of have to dive into something. And I, so I was thinking about that as kind of normative, that that makes sense that you were but I, are, right, Fowler's four stages of uh, spiritual development. He identifies that as a necessary place to go through. Yes, you know, and that if we tried to take our children, for example, into what he calls you know the stages three and four of the spiritual development, uh, without passing through uh, stages one and two, it wouldn't work. For a while, there has to be something that's black and white, yes. true and false, that sort of thing. Well, that goes back to that. Um, a friend of mine recently said, you, you know, you really do need to study the canon initially. You know, there's there's something about like, you know, Picasso's process where it's like, well, no, he's a classical painter first. And then all of a sudden can kind mm-hmm. of break 
you know, to use this uh, byline that we're going to get to a lot, breaking free of that thing that right. contain you, that was almost like a gestation stage. And then you can free yourself from it after you're formed. And I, I, maybe right. this might be belaboring it, but that just makes a lot of sense to me in the way you said it. I, I, I like a lot. Yeah, Coltrane says almost the identical <laughs> thing about jazz. He says, first, you learn your instrument. And then you learn the scales and the modes and the chords. And then you learn the literature of the music, the standards. And then you forget all of that shit and you just play. (laughs) Ah, man. Yes. Without a doubt. So, so far, um, you and I are tracking wonderfully, Mark. You're quoting Coltrane. We're talking about fundamentalism. (laughs) We're into psychoanalytic theory. This is great, man. Good, good. I'm enjoying it too. Good. So, um, to to go back for a second into the um, to help people break free from the preconceptions. Uh, how how long have you been doing this? You've been you've been a therapist for. I've been a psychologist since 1987, so 32, 33 years. Yeah. So there's some uh, experience you've got with people walking through your door. And what, what would you say, because right. I, I do want to tend to this, you know, on the podcast, I've had a lot of conversations about the, some of the deeper depth aspects of um, psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a part of me that feels like, well, we've never really tended to just what this thing is. And so from your experience, mm-hmm. what are people seeking when, because they, they, they probably aren't saying, I, I really want to help. I want help breaking free of my preconceptions. In your experience, what are they saying? Right. What's, what's, what's their theory so far? Well, analysis should be a process. And while I might give some initial suggestions and do give some initial suggestions about how to approach it, um, it's going to emerge in the way I interact with the person. And so they're going to come to an awareness based on my interactions, whatever they bring in. You know, they might say, I'm really struggling in my marriage. Uh, I'm really feel stuck in this career. I've always hated my body. It doesn't matter where they open up, where they start the process. The process is going to be me, uh, what helping them develop what is called the reflective function, the capacity, which is simply the capacity to feel or think or sense something and then step out of it and wonder about it. And that, that's really what we're trying to cultivate. And that's what allows people to finish therapy and leave is the capacity to reflect on their experience in a meaningful way. So it might simply be me calling attention to something. Um, One guy I saw, it was, he always leaned forward. He always sat on the edge of the couch, leaning forward with his elbows on his knees. And I got curious about that position because it was so predictable. And I simply asked him, what is it like for you when you sit in that position? And he said, 
well, there's some geometric shapes that are inside and I have to line up those geometric shapes. Well, that told me a tremendous amount about his interior experience. Uh, and, you know, I won't go into the, the details about that, of where that progressed from, but it's that sort of thing of you just never know what it's going to, I never know. I used to, in my younger days, think, I could predict how long somebody would be in therapy, what the outcome would be, that sort of thing. And that was the hubris of youth. <laughs> and now people say, well, how long do you think this is going to take? And I'll say, I have no idea. I had one patient who came in after eight years and said, okay, we need to wrap this up in about six months. I'm completely astonished surprise and I say well why and she said well I've always had a dream of living in California and I said really you've never told me that she says I know I never thought I would have the courage to do it now I do <laughs> and she did what a great moment she left she you know made all of the arrangements and went to California yeah you know, so that's not something I can predict, but if I stay with the process that I've learned from my mentors and that I've in some way found a way to articulate for myself what I call the analytic attitude that kind of guides my interventions, then I, I have faith now that that leads somewhere meaningful. Will you say more about the analytic attitude? Well, the analytic attitude is kind of the, the, the basic, you could say, fundamental philosophy or stance. And it might be different things for different people, different therapists. But for example, an important value in any sort of analytic therapy is not to foreclose on what the patient might say or do. So if somebody's gone on vacation and they come back to therapy a week later, I'm never going to start the session by asking them how was their vacation. Even though that might be the foremost thing in my thought, I'm going to sit down and wait and see what they want to start with. And maybe it'll be their vacation, and maybe it'll be something completely different. But I know if I speak first and ask about out of my agenda, that's going to likely foreclose on something else emerging. So in, in the book, I identify about eight of these things that I live by. Another one is psychic, Jung's notion of psychic reality, that what happens inside of us is just as real on an experiential level as what happens around us. So if somebody tells me something as a fact that I know isn't possible, I don't confront them and say, well, that's not possible. I listen for what the reality of that experience is to them, and I speak to that reality. So there's a great uh, scenario where a psychoanalyst named Robert Langs is speaking with a guy named a really brilliant analyst named Harold Searles and he's been seeing this woman in an inpatient inpatient residential setting 
And one day she comes in and says, uh, do you think I should bring my, my dog to the session? Now he's very familiar with her. He knows she doesn't have a dog, but he says to her very humanely, Oh, what, how big of a dog is it? And she says, Oh, about this big and gestures about a foot long. And so he mimics the gesture and says, Oh, so just about this big. She says, yes. And he says, so not so big that it would create a disruption. She says, no, I don't think so. And he says, well, why do you think your dog would like to come to the session? She says, well, he's sad. Now his patient is psychotic. She's not in touch with reality. Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, well, how sad is your dog? And she says, oh, he's very sad. I think he wants to die. And he simply looks at her and he says, well, then he certainly should come to the session. And if he had done reality testing with her and said, well, you don't have a dog, that he would have lost something so important in the process. If he had not accepted her psychic reality and met her where she was, Things like that. The other, the other, another, I'll just mention one more principle that I live by is narrative truth. And this comes from a guy named Donald Spence, who wrote a book called Narrative Truth versus Historical Truth. And too often therapists want to try to figure out what actually happened, mm-hmm. actually in quotes. And they become these detectives and say, well, what did your husband say? Or when did that happen? Or was your mother really gone? All of these sort of questions. And what's important is not what actually happened, but how the person internalized took in what happened. This is completely consistent with an author, a writer named Aldous Huxley. And he says, experience is not what happens to us experiences what we do with what happens to us. So I'm always listening as much as possible for what has the person done with what's happened to them. You know, if somebody walks into our office and we perceive them as beautiful and talented, but they don't perceive themselves that way, and we simply engage in trying to convince them that they actually are beautiful and talented, we've lost them because we haven't understood the story they've taken in. It's a good reminder, Mark. I, I yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I think of a lot of moments where I've both met that, but also moments where I haven't. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's such a process of, I, 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 speaking of reflection, that's such a process of our reflection, how, how as therapists we show up and are willing to note the moments of, you know, whatever kind of rupture in the relationship, whether it's intense or subtle, and to be able to come back and make the shifts and changes necessary to be able to meet people where they are. Right. So when somebody comes in and feels guilty for something and we try to normalize that by saying, oh, you shouldn't feel guilty. Everyone feels that way about that. Well, we've just failed to meet 
the person and un fail to understand why their guilt yeah. is the way it is. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, we, so the psychotherapy room becomes a place where you're able to express, um, whether it's images or feelings or thoughts that typically have to be pretty, um, I would say edited, you know, that I, I, I do have a, I tend to say, look, you know, one of the things I think is really important is not to edit yourself. And, mm -hmm. and that's one of my experiences, how much we're always editing ourselves. And as psychotherapists, you know, if we combine our collective practices, we, we can make some pretty solid assumptions about the differences between how somebody presents in the world and what they're really carrying around with them. Right, what Jung would call the shadow yeah. and the persona. Well, and you said you said reflection earlier, and I want to go to this, um, the five main instinctual drives, and maybe get a little bit theoretical, but note these really quickly because I think these can be kind of a good guide rail for us. Um, they they are, you know, in in part, what was happening, and you know, Freud was talking about sexuality as the primary drive, and. And what Jung does is come along and says, ah, oh, you know, there's some more than that. There are reflection, creativity, activity, sexuality, and hunger. And mm -hmm. so he kind of broadens this. And so I, right there, you've already positioned the, the capacity for one to reflect upon oneself as a primary orientation for you to help bring out of the individual. So I don't know if you want to go deeper into that or maybe touch on some more of these but as we're as we're talking more about helping somebody or breaking free from preconceptions, what can you say about all that? Well, one thing I'd like to say about reflection, it also is is termed by uh, some uh, a guy named Peter Fonagay, who is out of the UK, and he calls it mentalization, mm -hmm. the which he defines as the capacity to think about one's thinking. And he's developed a specific model of psychotherapy that's psychoanalytically based for borderlines, borderline personality disorder. And what he did was he developed an, uh, a partial inpatient program for borderlines that was about 18 months long, meaning that they went several times a week for multiple hours a day, and then they continued on an outpatient psychotherapy basis. And at the conclusion of this, uh, they measured how much progress they had made through a variety of psychological scales and things. And then they kept following them and they followed them for eight years. Now in most psychotherapies, like let's take cognitive behavioral therapy of depression, for example, after therapy ends, um, the effect, the, the treatment effect begins to drop off pretty quickly. And in very large scale studies, the treatment effect from cognitive behavioral therapy, the patient is usually back to their baseline level of functioning, meaning the, t the, the level of functioning they had at the time they started therapy within four months. So there's improvement that's made, but it's not sustained. So 
the treatment effect size, this is a technical term, is a way of comparing treatment effects across different modes of treatment. So one would be a 1.0, would be a really large treatment effect size. The standard treatment effect size for an antidepressant is 0.32. The treatment effect size for cognitive behavioral therapy at the conclusion of treatment is 0.62. For psychoanalytically oriented therapies, the treatment effect size is 0.92 on average. So it's a really big treatment effect size. So there's a lot of talk about, well, it's expensive, it lasts longer. But the thing is, is the treatment effect size is bigger than any other measured treatment. The interesting thing is, though, for example, with if you follow people after they've concluded psychoanalytic treatment, the treatment effect size doesn't drop off, it continues to grow. And for this one specific group that's the longest term follow-up study that's been done, their treatment effect size grew without any additional treatment after the conclusion to 2.0. And the only way to account for that, in my mind, is that their reflective capacity was essentially established, and then their continued use of reflection improves over time, that the more times they're able to reflect on their experience. So maybe somebody who's listening might wonder, well, what does that mean? Somebody who does not have much capacity to reflect, might get angry. That's the emotion. They might identify who they're angry at. I'm angry at Joe because he said this about me. And then reach a conclusion based on that emotion. I'm going to punch Joe for saying that about me. So there's not any real reflection. There's just a stimulus and evaluation of what that stimulus means to them and a response. Now, somebody who has some capacity to reflect might still have the same degree of anger. They might be able to say, I'm angry because Joe said this about, but then there'd be an intervening step that would say, wow, there could be some consequences if I punch Joe. I'd like to punch Joe but I might go to jail if I punch Joe. Or I might say, gee, Joe has been a friend for five years, and if I punch Joe, I'm probably going to lose that friendship. Or I might say, if I punch Joe, I'm going to feel really like I'm the smaller person here. I don't want to feel emotionally smaller than Joe. I think I'd rather take the high road, tell Joe how I feel about what he said, and choose not to punch him, but be able to express my feelings. So there's three possible things that intervene between Joe said this about me, I'm going to punch Joe, that allows a freedom of choice rather than a rote impulse behavior. 
to add to that, because I want to hear what you'd say about this. If my reflection is, well, I want to punch Joe because my father pissed me off like that when I was younger and I want to get violent. So I'm going to, now I can punch Joe and I'm, I'm really kind of being able to punch my father at the same time. Well, that's a reflection. Uh, if that person was in therapy, I might say something simple like, do you suppose that some of the intensity of what you feel about Joe is actually connected to your father? And maybe it's not so much Joe that you want to punch, but that you really would like to have an opportunity to punch your father instead of Joe. Are you sure Joe's the most appropriate target for your anger? Yeah, and that so I would take what their reflection was and try to build from that reflection. Right. And so yeah, I because I, I I I hope anybody listening to this reads your book. You you had these wonderful moments like that, like like you just offered, where you make something a little more concrete. And I, and again, I think that's what's so important about what you're doing by this synthesis process of kind of mm -hmm. you know putting Jungian psychology under the heading of psychoanalytic and, and then being able to integrate whether it's, you know, Ogden or Kohut or whomever you're borrowing from. Uh, right. You can use some of that potency of, uh, of getting a little more concrete and, and that mm -hmm. maybe I'm jumping ahead and please put the brakes on at any point. If I, if you've got something lingering, cause in in reflection is is we're under that that part of this five uh, five different uh, drives. In in reflection, I I think that it open there's a there's a duality inherent in reflection, and and I think that's one thing that uh, that that you talk about a lot, which is the reductive versus the synthetic approach, and that's one of the things I was trying to get at there, which is when we tend to reflect on our experience and we locate you know our, our current you know physiological emotional and you know cognitive experience in some historic event so would mm -hmm. would you speak a little bit about you know reduction which tends to go what the jungian tends to do is say well the, the freudian approach is pretty reductive uh, and I, I think that's right in a lot of ways um, and the jungian approach is more symbolic but I wonder if we could just kind of have a conversation about what those signifiers, Freudian, Jungian, really mean. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the contrast holds up. I do point towards the reductive versus synthetic duality that's been described in the past. The whole psychoanalytic world has largely moved towards many of Jung's ideas. And so the notion that there isn't something synthetic or transcendent in contemporary psychoanalysis is a fallacy that is largely maintained by Jungians. <laughs> There's many things, for example, in the, the, the ideas of Wilfred Bion, for example, that are very synthetic, very transcendent, very, or another term that Jung uses is perspective, meaning looking forward. Uh, he, instead of uh, 
using the term that Jung uses, individuation, meaning coming into a wholeness of one's own being, he uses a different phrase. He says, coming into being. And so that we're always trying to come into being. And so uh, I think these are just two threads that we utilize and they're interweaving throughout the process. And sometimes it's going to be important to help them understand the story that they've developed about the life they've lived thus far. And then sometimes it's going to be important to point out to them the parts of their future life that they have difficulty imagining. Uh, you know, so I'll, I'll actually use that terminology uh, to point out to somebody their blind spot about themselves. You know, if somebody brings in a dream that is quite poetic, for example, but they can't see the poetry in it. And I might say, oh, that's so poetic. Have you ever thought of writing a poem? And they might say, oh, I'm not that kind of person. I, and I might say something like, yes, you have difficulty imagining that there could be something creative already existing in you. And then I'm not doing something reductive. I'm, using, I'm pointing towards something that's present already, but they don't know that it's present. Or it's nascent and it hasn't been developed. So I try to, I think of it all as developmental. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's either developmental in terms of how something came into being or how something's moving into being. There, there's a guy named um, Hans Diekmann who wrote this beautiful book called Methods in Analytical Psychology. And uh, he says, he's speaking specifically about complexes, which is Jung's term for some central emotional issue that somebody has, like a mother complex or a father complex or a money complex. And he says, every complex has a past, a present, and a future. And if we don't deal with the person in all three tenses, we've failed to engage them. Hmm. So the past of a complex is how it came to be. The present of a complex is how it operates now. And the future of it speaks to where it's going to take us if we don't succeed in altering the complex or where it might potentially take us if we're able to unpack that complex and see the part of the personality that's waiting to develop. Which of course has me almost back at the, the CBT piece, which is this idea that, you know, I, I think exclusively that we can change the way we think about something and then, um, and then, and then we're fine. Right. Everything, the thought is only one piece of the puzzle. Right. And it's important to know what the thought is, but the, the idea in cognitive behavioral therapy that if you change the thought, you change the feeling in the person, whereas any kind of psychoanalytic therapy is fundamentally rooted in experience. Now, it's good to have an intellectual understanding of what's happened, but if that, if that, understanding isn't 
accompanied by an emotional experience, something that makes us go take a breath or go aha, that we feel in our body, it's going to be not transformative. You know, if so, throughout my work with patients, I try to avoid all conceptual language. I don't, I try not to use terms like complex, persona, shadow, anima, animus, self. And I find a way to operationalize those concepts in ordinary, everyday language. So if I'm thinking shadow, I simply say uh, the part of yourself that you've found a way to disown. It's saying the same thing, right. but it's saying it in everyday language. And almost everything that we have to deal with in analysis can be said that way. And so my desire is not to create Jungians or good patients. My desire is to help people find a way to articulate the experience they've had in, in a meaningful, emotional way. And so I'll pick up metaphors and images from the way they speak and incorporate those. And that becomes our shared language not something that I've given them from a book. So the patient finds a way to image, if they've got a father complex, it's imaged through their dreams or through their memories. And we find a way to utilize that. Mm -hmm. Why do you think, what's your theory for why there are all these theories that exist? Well, uh, the, I, I think the idea is that what we're trying to articulate changes with time. And so these things like uh, what Freud and Jung initially termed neuroses was a very broad category of experience. Today, we wouldn't talk about a neurosis so much. We would talk about primarily depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. But then they had a lot of what was called conversion hysteria conversion blindness, conversion paralysis, uh, things like that, which was seemed to do with the way the repressive elements of Victorian society uh, impacted people. And so a lot of it was expressed in physical symptoms and things have changed. We're not quite as repressed in, particularly in terms of sexuality, as we were in the late 1800s. But now we have other issues. Uh, and culture has changed. And we can't always draw from the same resources that Freud and Jung drew from. They were dealing largely with middle class, upper middle class, and wealthy Europeans who all had a common uh, educational process that often involved uh, knowledge of works of classical literature, poetry. They often spoke multiple languages like Latin and Greek, mm -hmm. French, Spanish. You know, they had a much uh, 
broader cultural background to draw from. Now we have less of that in our culture than we used to. Uh, and there's a lot more of what we now would call personality disordered individuals. People with borderline personality disorder, avoidant personality, schizoid or schizotypal personality. Um, there, there's all sorts of things. And so therapy has to change depending on what's emerging in the culture of the time. Also, the whole notion of when Freud and Jung originally started, it was the, the model was the analyst is the detached um, authoritative observer who communicates to the patient what's wrong with them. And gradually over time, as some of our cultural norms have broken down through the 1960s and things have become more egalitarian or democratic, however you want to put it, and we've realized that that's a problematic stance to take and that we're both affecting, both the therapist and the patient are affecting each other. Mm -hmm. This became known as the interrelational, the relational movement or the intersubjective movement within psychoanalysis. And there were certain elements of Jungian thought that developed later that are actually precursors to this. And he said, every analyst should be changed by their, their patient, otherwise there's no analysis going on. So now we see the process as a much more collaborative process in which the analyst's emotions are going to be present, not necessarily revealed directly, but used as information for the therapist to draw from. It's just frustrating to me, and, and it's kind of a, I don't know, I feel uh, impotent around this frustration because we're, we're, we, human beings are consistently you know, creating denominations that fight each other. And, right. and it, it, again, it's, it, it's, a, it's a frustrating thing for people not to mine in, I think it should maybe just be a policy that if you feel you're in opposition to something, uh, go on over there and learn what, where they're coming from. And you, you've got your richest source of knowledge there, at least the potential for a very rich source of knowledge. Right. And I don't admit... Exactly. And go on, sorry. Jung, Jung said this himself. That's what frustrates me so much about people who uh, make some sort of almost religious idealization of Jung and say, oh, I only want to read Jung. I don't want to read any of these psychoanalysts. And Jung himself, in his own words, said, sometimes I can be heard speaking to my patients as a Freudian, and sometimes as an Adlerian, and sometimes just as me. Yeah. And another place he says, the ultimate truth requires the concert of many voices. You know, and Jung himself didn't draw just from his own ideas. His he doesn't have that many original ideas. <laughs> he's what he's excellent at doing is identifying significant ideas and drawing them together into a systematic pattern. So his idea of archetypes goes back to Plato. He's not the originator of that. 
And he openly acknowledges it, but many people forget about that. Right. And then they don't know the history of the other forms of psychoanalysis. So I'll say, tell me about projective identification. And they'll tell me a definition of it. And they'll understand the concept. And I'll say, well, where do you think that comes from? And they'll say, isn't it Jungian? And I'll say, no, that's actually from Melanie Klein. Mm -hmm. He proposed that concept in 1946. And if you don't know that, you're only half educated. Well, we're getting we're getting technical too. That's yeah. So, yeah. you know, at its base, though, I, I people we simultaneously feel conflicted between we 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 are such creatures of habit and the familiar, and so the preconceptions. Back to our you know initial comment, our preconceptions on some level keep us safe and they're familiar and it's the path that's well-worn and then something in us kind of generates an energy that we say, wait a second, I, I just, you know, and it usually comes in the form of a symptom, right? Like I'm not sleeping or I'm, I'm feeling anxious or I, I'm, you know, blackout drunk twice a week. And, and that's the complaint. You know, the, mm -hmm. I'm coming into therapy because I need to like no longer get blackout drunk. And, right. and, and I, this whole process is, is one, I think, to differentiate that, I mean, again, we got to do that. CBT says, okay, like, this is how you don't do that, right? You know, like, uh, um, let's let's have you evaluate why it is you're, you're drinking and, you know, kind of give you some some confining protocols to say, like, you know, be a, the, all, all kinds of ideas of why, how to be reflective on your drinking. Right. And what, what, what this approach is looking at is it's saying, well, something's really moving through you that's not expressed and there's an obstruction uh, to that expression that actually has to do with some of your preconceptions. And that's the theory for living that you've got, because that's what was laid down before you by your culture, your physiology, your, uh, your family of origin, you know, your friend, your traumas, you know, and then that becomes restrictive and confining and containing and, and we don't know the way through it or out of it. And so we turn to somebody else that says, Hey, I, I got some experience doing this and I think I can help you be a little bit more reflective and give more expression to those parts of yourself. And which is why I think numbers, you know, two through five, um, and, and in particular creativity is one of those drives that we need to get to. And you write a lot about aesthetics and creativity. Right, I think it's the underserved part uh, in most forms of psychotherapy that, you know, unless you're doing art therapy, for example, um, or expressive arts therapy that might be more than just uh, painting or sculpting. It might be movement or mm -hmm. dramatization or poetry, something like that. But the idea that there's something in us that needs expression uh, and that both it reveal the expression reveals, but it also brings life too. You know, so the, the notion of creativity is rooted in create. And when we're creating, there's something about us that feels more alive. And so I think if we don't, not that everybody has to become an artist in order to develop 
but I think for the people who are willing to, to take that risk of becoming uh, creative or getting in touch with their own creativity, I think it's a powerful force that then becomes something that they can draw from after therapy concludes. Well, and that's kind of what you were saying earlier in a, the case you were looking at, which was about the poet, you know, I'm, I'm not creative like that, or I'm not, I don't do that. And what a wound that mm -hmm. is for people to think that, you know, the creative is reserved for artists when in fact, right. the reason I think taking this and putting it as, as a drive that is as fundamental and as, as present as hunger is or sexuality is kind of reappropriates some of the nature of our nature, um, which, which, the, the inherent bias that we have to exclude creativity from something so fundamental is one of those preconceptions that we're trying to break free of on some level. And I, I think our culture partially serves to inhibit that yeah. because we're, we've become a culture of consumers. You know, we consume entertainment, uh, uh, and think that that's the normal way to be. Right. You know, we, we wait for the next series to be uploaded so we can binge watch it. And, to and so we're, we get conditioned to, sur to search for entertainment. And unfortunately, the amount of time we spend seeking entertainment interferes with connecting with ourselves of, of waiting to see what emerges from us or engaging in processes that will facilitate that emergence. So, I, you know, I went to see decades ago or decade or so ago, this concert by uh, two acoustic musicians, Mike Marshall and Chris Thiele. Chris Thiele was uh, the mandolinist for Nickel Creek. Hmm. Uh, and now then the punch brothers. And now he took over for Garrison Keeler as the host of, uh, Prairie home companion. It's not called that anymore, but essentially that's his role. And they both said at the conclusion, we encourage everyone to throw away their TV. You won't regret it. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's part that's part of what leaves room for creativity. It's funny. Aldous Huxley said something like that. That uh, oh, really? Yeah, he believed that that I mean, he was really contemptuous when it came to the television. Like, you know, kind of talking about it as this big box that everybody just kind of hovers around, and you know, the the faces. And I say I need to out myself. I mean, I'm a pretty big film, TV person like i i like the narrative and yeah there there are probably some times where i i tend to space out on it and and i also am aware enough to really understand that uh, yeah i'd probably be better served if i went and gardened and wrote a song right and that's the thing is the different i'm not one to uh I, I love movies too. I think they're a great source of inspiration uh, for my own imagination. Mm -hmm. uh, I use movies a lot in my teaching. Uh, I'll be just as likely to mention a movie to a patient as I will to mention a fairy tale or a myth. Yeah. 
and think that it often has just as much, if not more impact. So it's, but the pro, the idea is about being intentional about one, what one chooses to watch and watching with intention right. uh, so that you're feeding soul through it rather than occupying time. So, so to, to kind of continue this, of course, you know, it's the narrative piece, the, the kind of modern day fairy tale and film that's, that's so important. And I, I also think that this, this clicks with something we were talking about earlier that to, to see somebody's imagination on the screen, you know, clicks with something inside of us and it helps us imagine. And then we make metaphor and we make references and we kind of have that stream of images and reality to kind of access. And the, the thing in the chapter that I think meant the most to me in your book was your chapter on reverie. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that's one of, when I was reading it, I was really thinking about, whoa, I mean, not only as a psychotherapist having, you know, being encouraged to be more present with my own experience of reverie, but also encouraging each person we work with to, to follow that thread, you know, so the way I'll tend to say it is, is in my first or second session, I'll say to somebody, look, you know, don't edit. Um, and I, I want you to really bring anything into the room, you know, whether it's, you know, an image or anger or a, a weird sensation. I mean, weird. Um, allow, let it be and let it be here with us. And so, I, I, so we're talking about the cultural, um, I don't know what word I want to use, but the cultural issues associated with kind of restricting creativity. And and I think that's kind of one of the answers is that we don't feel free to roam around freely in the inner space. Could you talk about that for a bit? Yeah, I think you want, one of the things I wanted to mention is that there's so many of the ideas, both from Freud and Jung and some of the later psychoanalysts that we certainly can't evaluate everything empirically, but there are certain things that are really coming out of cognitive science and neuroscience that really are affirmative of these ideas that they came to intuitively and through clinical experience. So the notion of reverie, uh, we now know from neuroscience that we have these a few primary networks that our brain is organized in. And it looks very different on a functional MRI when we look at it. And one of those modes is called the task-specific mode. So when you're planning your day or going to the grocery store or working on a paper or working on a spreadsheet, everybody's in task-specific mode. We've got another mode called the default mode network that's kind of dreamy, imagistic, but our, our culture, because we occupy ourselves so much, there's less opportunity to shift into that mode. So like when we, we're scanning our cell phones, surfing the internet, looking at who's posted on Facebook, we're keeping our minds in task-specific mode. 
and we actually need time in the default mode network. The analogy I use in the book is watching the clouds together, you know, laying on our backs in the grass as kids with a buddy or a girlfriend or whoever, and looking up and saying, I see a dragon. And they say, oh, I don't see a dragon, I see an elephant. Well, there we're in the default mode network. And research on both productivity and creativity indicates that both are promoted, enhanced by time spent in the default mode network. And so whether you're a scientist or an artist, if you're always trying to figure something out, always undertaking a task, you don't actually have the time in the mode that actually nurtures the very process you're trying to work on. And that's why a number of my patients use the couch, because we know that when you're in a reclined mode, physiologically, you're more likely to shift into the default mode network and not be so task-oriented not so oriented on figuring out what's wrong with you and being able to let things float into your mind, into your body, into your experience that might have some connection to the things you feel. Would you define reverie? Reverie, it comes from a guy named Wilfred Bion and it's, he associates it with the state that the mother is in with an infant, where she's not necessarily uh, trying to do something specific, but she's present emotionally and in a sense, imaginally, because the infant can't speak for themselves. So the mother's always trying to imagine what's going on in the infant. Is the infant hungry, tired, happy, wet, uh, frustrated? And they use those dreamy intuitions and interact with the infant in some way, but with through words. And so even though the child doesn't understand them, the speaking of these words aloud helps facilitate the experience, the exchange. And so he borrows that term what he actually refers to as maternal reverie, and says this is the mindset that the therapist should be in with the patient. And ideally, that the patient becomes able to enter into a similar mindset. But in general, it's just a semi, it's an awake, but kind of dreamy state not exactly daydreaming like, oh, what would I do if I had $10,000 or $100,000 or I won the lottery? <laughs> That's more like wish fulfillment. Yeah. But if we just sat quietly and didn't have an agenda, eventually things would start to bubble up. Kind of like when you've got a big pot of stew on the, pot, on the stove and it's kind of simmering. And all you can see is the tomato base floating on the surface. But if you take a ladle and dip down and pull up, then some chunks of meat and potato and carrot and onion might come up to the surface. 
And that's kind of what we hope happens in a reverie state is something occurs to us rather than we go find something. So like one of the images I use in the book, uh, this patient is telling me about something. I don't even remember exactly what it was about, but something about it, I started having this image of a desert. Now I could have just said, wow, as you're talking, I'm having the image of a desert. But I wasn't sure how it was connected, so I just kept listening. And eventually I took the sensate, my image of what it's like to be in the desert and spoke that to her. And I said, you travel through life searching for something to quench your thirst, but all you find around you is dryness, as though you live in a desert. Now there I've metabolized my image a bit and translated it in more direct contact to the way she was speaking. So it wasn't so much the exact content of what she was saying, but the qualities of that content that were important. And that resonated with her tremendously. Yeah, just how often are, you know, back to preconceptions, we are, because I was that kid, certainly, that was told what to do, what not to do, how to do it. I felt really misunderstood from, you know, it's it's funny, I, I felt it misunderstood academically, and so I found art and music and creativity. And mm. It's kind of mm. one of the ways I pushed to go, well, I can't do that, so I'm going to push up against that. But it's but still, the, and it sounds weird, permission, you know, whatever that means. But the, the permission and the validation to say, hey, that thing that you do that happens to you all the time, it doesn't need to be so defended against. And that there's actually a language system that's beneath your language system. And there's something important to be, you know, collected and communed with when you're relating with those images and affects. That sets mm -hmm. us up in a very different attitude for living than the one we currently do. Right. And so I try to give those sorts of permissions implicitly rather than explicitly. Right. So it will be something like, I'll point out their own prohibitions. You seem to think that you shouldn't speak to me about any of your fantasies. Well, aren't fantasies bad, they might say. I say, you sound like you have a feeling about fantasies. Well, aren't they all sexual? And I said, they could be sexual, but they might be about other things. What sort of fantasies do you have? Now, then I've given my implicit permission and encouragement for them to speak about their fantasies without me saying, it's really important for you to talk about your fantasies in here. Mm -hmm. I'll be now, I'm sure you didn't mean that that's no, literally what, the, what you do, but I think it's important to be explicit between us about how one goes about encouraging that. Yeah. No, I just, I, I realize, you know, we're all learning a language system and how often, you know, as a, as a human and certainly as a psychotherapist, I can fall into some of these patterns and mm -hmm. how, in, I don't know, that, that's, it's, 
to to speak about this in this way and to even hear you reflect on that then i just i just feel a sense of encouragement and excitement um to to kind of to elongate the process and not to have to be so decisive and to allow for that curiosity and wonder to come in the space as opposed to the how to's because i've had that conversation a lot about fantasy you know and i it's like because every people tend to get really tense around using the term fantasy and i want to reappropriate you know reconnect people with that wait a second like why do you think that's such a of course you can give in your fantasies but i i am going at it too direct there a lot of times so i've i've fallen Mm -hmm. into that exact issue plenty yeah so often the the analogy i use for myself and that i speak about some in the book is the interaction in jazz music which is improvisational and so every jazz interaction that's done in an ensemble starts out with what they call the head which is simply the statement of the melody in its simplest terms so john coltrane does uh, my favorite things you know which we all know from what is it uh, sound of music uh, i believe and he states it just like it's done uh, there and then he and his fellow musicians go through about 25 courses improvising on that theme almost to the point that it's not recognizable and then suddenly towards the end he brings back <laughs> in the original melody yeah, and you remember oh and he's just dropping in little notes along the way that remind you he's still playing my favorite things and i think that's what ideally doesn't happen with everybody not everybody that we see has the capacity to do that with us but the for with the people that do develop that capacity it is like an improvisation they come in and they say you know what i've been thinking about lately is this and that's the opening statement and then i'll i'll have an idea about that and i'll respond and i'll try to respond in a way that leaves them freedom of movement to develop their own response to my statement and that's the way jazz moves forward is with somebody who's making something a strong enough statement that it makes the mu- the music move ahead but it's not stated so restrictively that the next person doesn't have room to choose where to begin and end their statement. Oh, I'm loving this. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one, man. Thank you. So I, there's a, in one of the classes that I teach there, you know, I've got a little video of Frank Vignola and uh, Tommy Emmanuel uh, improvising on guitars, you know, and one I explain one person's playing the rhythm while the other person plays the melody and then they swap back and forth but the melody is changed up in the process and in this little two and a half minute you know excerpt of just these guys sitting on a patio in italy you you really get the feel of the movement back and forth yeah and then they then they make the 
analogy. Oh, yeah, that is how therapy works, ideally. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, you um, that that's again, that's really validating. You you wrote in one of your papers uh, on aesthetics, and I know we got to close out, but um, that sometimes you will find yourself in a session and kind of appreciating the way the ink falls onto the page as your pen moves. And I can't tell you, I, I write with a fountain pen. I can't, mm. there have been times where I've been like, oh shit, I gotta like, uh, the, you know, but I am having this really beautiful moment. And I, I, I think of how often I have those kinds of beautiful moments with people. And, and so it's the capacity mm -hmm. to be in a, and appreciate that, that becomes pregnant with, all this wonderful connecting juice that that shows up when people are really improvising in that kind of way. Right, and I, I think that comes through often for the person we're sitting with in a feeling without having to be stated explicitly. Occasionally, it's important to state it explicitly, but more often, it's okay to just let it float through the room. Well, thanks for improvising here with me today. Great. It's been fun. And uh, hope our paths cross again sometime in the future. I do too. I do too, Mark. Thank you. Anything yeah. uh, Anything you want to note where people can reach your website, that kind of stuff? Uh, it's drmarkwinborn.com, D-R-M-A-R-K-W-I-N-B-O-R-N.com. And all of these books that we've talked about, or my books anyway, uh, are listed there. And the papers that I've written and stuff like that are all on there. And my contact information, if there's some reason somebody would want to get in contact with me, is on there as well. So that's probably the easiest way. Well, we're making it part of our, our practice here that each therapist, myself included, we're going to be talking about what you've written. So as a as from a therapist, I'm, I'm thankful, man. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome, John. It's been enjoyable and uh, I'll see you down the road and hopefully we'll make music together someday. I love that. I don't know.